everyone, and welcome to our latest Regulation Around the World podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge here at North Morris Fulbright. And in this podcast, uh, Tim Byrne, a financial services partner from our New York office, will provide an update on recovery and resolution in the United States. Tim will then be followed by Flipga Badenboga, a member of our government relations and public policy team in Brussels, who will take us through the European Commission's latest crisis management and deposit insurance legislative package, which contains proposals which amend the EU regime for the recovery and resolution of credit institutions. As always, this podcast is accompanied by a written regulation around the world update, which covers the latest developments in recovery and resolution in a number of jurisdictions. The written update can be found on our regulation around the world hub, located on the North Maria's Fulbright website. Perhaps before joining our US colleague, it's worth briefly touching on developments in the United Kingdom, specifically the bank resolvability assessment framework. As many of you will know, the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority, or PRA, jointly consulted on the Bank Resolvability Assessment Framework in December 2018, and its purpose is to ensure that UK banks are accountable for their own resolvability. And this is done by demonstrating how they are prepared for resolution, as well as requiring some of the banks to publicly disclose their own assessment of their resolvability. The framework itself was finalized during the summer of 2019 with the publication by the Bank of England of a statement covering its approach to assessing resolvability, a new resolution assessment part of the PRA rulebook and the PRA supervisory statements and statements of policy. Some of these statements of policy and supervisory statements were updated in the summer last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Bank of England published the findings from its first resolvability assessment relatively recently in June last year. Overall, the news was fairly good following the assessment with the Bank of England finding that the results showed that the UK major banks were in a fundamentally better place than in the global financial crisis of 2007-2008 and that if a major UK bank entered into resolution, it could do so safely. Notwithstanding this, the Bank of England did find that there were some outstanding actions that needed addressing, and it also made the point that the banks would have to keep their preparations for resolution live, in the sense that their capabilities would need to keep pace with the evolution of their business changes in market and economic conditions and the changes in the regulatory landscape. At the time, the Bank of England also said that it would repeat its assessment in 2024 and thereafter every two years. So ahead of this next assessment, the Bank of England issued a letter in March this year providing further information, including that it expected its second resolvability assessment to begin in October this year, and that the assessment would focus on three key issues. Firstly, banks' overall ability to achieve the three resolvability outcomes, including that resolving capabilities are embedded and are execution ready. Secondly, that banks have dealt with the outstanding issues from the first assessment in line with any remediation plan shared with the Bank of England and address any new issues identified since. And thirdly, that the assessment would likely be more detailed than the previous assessment in the sense that there would be a more detailed assessment of a bank's ability to achieve the adequate financial resources outcome. 
This particular outcome means that the bank needs to have, at a minimum, capabilities, resources, and arrangements that meet the relevant Bank of England and PRA policies relating to the minimum requirement for own funds and eligible liabilities, MREL, valuations, and funding in resolution. Perhaps the key message from all of this for banks is testing, testing, testing. There should be more extensive testing, both in complexity and scope. Perhaps one particularly useful way of testing is FAR drill, a simulation of a credible scenario that will highlight issues within the bank's resolution playbook and also its governance structure. Governance is particularly crucial, given that both the Bank of England and the PRA have repeatedly made the point that boards and senior management are responsible for ensuring that their banks can achieve the resolvability outcomes on an ongoing basis. The Bank of England have also said that further detail on the nature of this assessment on the adequate financial resources outcome will be provided later in this year, but it will also include requests for data, documentation, or live evidence or demonstrations consistent with the examples of the type of evidence the Bank of England may request from firms in its statement of policy on the resolvability assessment framework. I suspect many banks have already started looking at this. No doubt banks should also be thinking about their public disclosures, something that the PRA covers in Supervisory Statement 419, Resolution Assessment and Public Disclosure by Firms, given that in the letter the Bank of England states that it also anticipates that banks will want to review their approach to disclosures ahead of the publication of the second assessment to ensure that disclosures provide an appropriate summary of the firm's or bank's preparations for resolution, including identifying any enhancements that may be appropriate. So that's a brief update on the UK position. Let's now move on to the United States. So in this part of the podcast, we turn to the United States, where I'm pleased to be joined by Tim Byrne, a financial services regulatory partner in our New York office. Tim, it's great to have you with us today. And to start off with, uh, could you just briefly summarize in your own words, what do you think are the key takeaways from the US actions to resolve SVB and Signature Bank? Uh, Hi, Simon. Hey, great uh, great topic today. Yeah, I think the the key point uh, in resolving uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank was that all depositors were covered. so the uninsured depositors uh, were covered. But that required reliance on a special statutory systemic risk exception uh, to the FDIC's resolution powers. So I think one of the conclusions is that these were large banks and not the only ones facing issues. Had depositors lost money or possibly even faced delays in access to a significant portion of their funds, more serious systemic uh, issues could have arisen. So in other words, these banks were perhaps too typical to fail. Policymakers have successfully calmed markets, but that doesn't mean all the issues have been resolved. Okay, thanks, Tim. Um, There's already been some preliminary and expedited internal reports published on the bank failures, and further reports are expected in due course. Um, What do you think are the key messages from the initial reports? Uh, What should management be thinking about? Well, yeah, in the short term, uh, the Fed and the FDIC reports 
uh, on SVB and Signature Bank and note the existence of several issues that went unaddressed for too long. Now, I think across the board, banks need to take decisive action to address problems you know, in any key areas of their operations. Uh, the SVB and Signature Bank failures related to you know, financial factors, such as liquidity, capital, interest rates, um, but other problems could arise relating to cybersecurity and data security, um, you know, AML, uh, anti-money laundering and sanctions related issues uh, are gonna continue to be important. And it's really the range of issues uh, and especially for banks experiencing rapid growth overall or in a particular line of business, uh, they're really gonna need to focus on any deficiencies uh, that are out there. Right? Problems that turn out to be critical have often been identified but not remediated. So prompt attention to existing deficiencies would be top of list. Now also, the recent failures uh, feature liquidity runs. And so contingency liquidity planning is key, right? Actual testing of emergency liquidity facilities. And do you know what kind of collateral you can pledge uh, and how to pledge it? Um, that's not resolution planning per se, but it is risk management of uh, you know, crisis situations. Okay, thanks, Tim. Now, the US regulators will be looking closely at what happened or indeed what didn't happen. Uh, what do you think are the changes which may happen to the regulatory landscape in the future? Well, yeah, I think you're right. The, I think there's gonna be a lot of careful examination at what happened in the United States and internationally. Um, so there is uh, clearly uh, some debate within the regulatory community on what needs to be done, uh, what should be done. But in the short term, you know, regulators and supervisors will do you know, some things that can be done that are not controversial or administratively uh, time consuming. And as I mentioned, things that can be implemented faster you know, probably will be such as taking action to address identified problems. You know, examiners bringing potential problems to the uh, attention of bank management, you know, bank management escalating more quickly uh, to boards and boards more closely requiring and monitoring remediation. And the examiners are gonna be uh, demanding that type of um, action and oversight. Then other changes are on the horizon also. Um, there, you know, there's a sort of a long-term debt proposal, um, additional uh, loss absorbency requirements that was published back in October that would apply to large banks. Um, and you know, one of the concerns was that you know, there were a lot of banks had a large percentage of uninsured depositors. So we're looking for sort of additional capital um, to cover those uninsured deposits. So that was that was back in October. So you can expect, you know, focus on completing uh, that rulemaking. Uh, the Fed was already undertaking a comprehensive review of the risk-based capital rules. Um, and then there's still the, the sort of the Basel endgame or the final implementation of the Basel rules. So in addition to that, you know, expect a focus on interest rate risk management. Um, it's hardly new, 
um, but and supervisors have been providing guidance on risk management for a rising interest rate environment you know for years um, it didn't really the interest rate increase didn't really materialize until recently and, and then it combined with other factors um, but that is uh, you know an area that is going to get renewed attention resolution planning uh, subjecting you know more banks uh, to the resolution plan requirement and then um, implementing the requirement sooner as banks you know, cross the relevant thresholds uh, where they become subject to the uh, resolution plan requirement. Um, managing risks arising from concentrated funding um, is also going to be an issue. That was a feature um, in the recent bank failures. Overall, probably not major changes, uh, just because major changes require legislative action and legislative action is difficult. Uh, also, overall, I think regulators believe that the, the overall supervisory framework is good and that banks are generally in strong condition so that a major overhaul um, is not warranted. I think where you may see um, more changes immediately is, you know, re uh, from a legislative level is the regulatory authority to take actions against you know, bank managers, you know, including clawback of compensation um, if there is a, you know, a bank failure. Um, and then just in terms of what's on the horizon, you know, don't lose sight of other things that are out there. So um, possible changes uh, to the standards for the review of bank mergers. Uh, that's something that the banking regulators and the Department of Justice are, are both looking at. Um, recent events also raise obvious questions for deposit insurance frameworks. And as many of our listeners will know, on the 1st of May, the FDIC issued a report which examines the role of deposit insurance in promoting financial stability and preventing bank runs. Um, Tim, uh, what are you, what's your take on this FDIC paper? Yes, the, the FDIC issued a paper on May 1st uh, that discusses several possible changes to the deposit insurance system. So the, the paper is interesting because it, it provides a background on the policy reasons for FDIC insurance. It provides a history of bank failures in the United States and the extent to which depositors uh, lost money. Uh, so currently in the US, deposit accounts are basically subject to, uh, to uh, $250,000 of insurance. It's per depositor per ownership capacity. Uh, and so the question is, should that be raised and should there be you know, unlimited insurance? Now, unlimited insurance for some accounts was implemented you know, as part of the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. Um, so there will be more to come uh, on this topic and market participants should think about what outcomes might be best for them and consider providing input to the FDIC uh, and other policymakers. Thanks, Tim. Uh, there's obviously a lot of thinking to be done on, from a policy perspective, but also there's some more sort of immediate actions that banks can take in light of the reports that have already been published. Uh, thanks again for joining us. That concludes the US part of this podcast.
In this part of the podcast, we focus on Europe. And for this, I'm delighted to be joined by Flipke van den Bogar, a government relations manager in our government relations and public policy team based in Brussels. Flipke, it's great to have you here. And in our regulation around the world written up data, we mentioned that the Commission has recently published a legislative package which amends the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive and also the Single Resolution Mechanism Regulation. And I would like to focus on this section on that. So, Flippia, could you please start by briefly giving your views on why the Commission has published this package? Yes, of course. Well, uh, one of the key objectives of the proposals is to make arrangements for managing the failure of smaller and medium-sized banks uh, to make them more effective in terms of their uh, design and implementation. Okay, interested. Now, the Commission proposes a number of amendments to the current uh, European recovery and resolution regime, and we'll, we'll go through these, but perhaps we could start with early intervention powers. Sure. So the European, European Commission in its proposal proposes to amend the conditions for applying early intervention measures, which includes the removal of management and the appointment of temporary man management during the intervention. And the European Commission wants to remove ambiguity in here. So the proposals, among other things, would provide that early intervention measures may be used when the conditions for supervisory measures as laid out in the Capital Requirements Directive or the Investment Firms Directive have been met, but when those measures have not been taken by the institution or are deemed insufficient to address the identified issues. Okay, thanks. And also the scope of resolution is being amended as well, isn't it? Yes, that is correct. The proposal includes provisions that would expand the scope of resolution by reviewing the public interest assessment. In the event a credit institution is considered failing or likely to fail, and there is a public interest in resolving it, the resolution authorities will intervene by using the tools provided by the BRRD if there is no private solution available. So the public interest exists when the actions taken by the resolution authority would achieve one or more of the objectives of the framework, for example, to protect financial stability, critical functions of the credit institution and the need to limit the use of extraordinary public financial support. In the proposal uh, at hand, the Commission amends the definition of critical functions to ensure that it refers to the impact of the disruption on the real economy and financial stability at a, as a regional level. The objective of this is to limit the use of extraordinary public support, and that is amended to include a specific reference to support provided by the budget of a member state to indicate that funding provided by the industry-funded safety nets should be considered preferable to funding supported by taxpayers' money. Okay, interesting. I, I just want to keep for a moment on the theme of public support. Um, the Commission is also proposing to update the conditions as to when extraordinary public support can be provided. Uh, yes, this is correct. The European Commission considers it necessary to provide for strict conditions on when public funds in the form of extraordinary public financial support can be provided and what form it can take, as it does not want to use public funds to support institutions that are not financially vi viable. For this reason, the European Commission pro proposes a provision stating that public financial support outside of resolution should be limited to, among other things, cases of precautionary recapitalization or preventive measures of deposit guarantee schemes that are aimed at preserving the financial soundness and long-term viability of credit institutions. Thanks for the co-interest. Another key area in recovery and resolution 
is the hierarchy of claims and deposits of preference. Uh, what changes are the Commission proposing here? Yes, the European Commission's proposed framework establishes a three-tier depository preference in the hierarchy of claims during insolvency proceedings. This provides that covered depositor and depositor guarantee scheme claims should have super preference in the creditor ranking national insolvency laws relative to non-covered uh, pre preferred deposits. This is deposits that exceed the coverage level of 100,000 euros. The Commission proposes more clarity for non-covered non, non and non-preferred deposits and introduces a general depositor preference with a single tiered ranking by extending the legal preference relative to ordinary unsecured claims to extend, extend to all deposits. This means that all deposits, including eligible deposits of large corporates and exclusive deposits, will rank above an ordinary unsecured claims. Thank you, Flutka. Um, and presumably the Commission is proposing sort of similar amendments that you've, you've taken us through to the um, single resolution mechanism regulation. Yes, the amendments to the single resolution mechanism regulation largely mirror those proposed for the BRRD, as those reflect a close interaction between the two legislative acts. The amendments are aimed at addressing a broad number of issues within the uh, SRM regulation review proposal, making amendments to the governance framework and the allocation of responsibilities of the single resolution boards, the ranking of claims under the single resolution fund, and the exchange of information between competent and resolution authorities. Thank you, Flipper. Now, the Commission's proposals come at a time when there is heightened scrutiny of banking failures given recent events. Um, how do you think these events will impact the Commission's proposals? That is a very good question, actually. So while we can only see how the legislative process will play out in the future, we do know that recent bank failures have put a review of the banking crisis management regime back on the legislative agenda of the European Commission. The legislative review had already been announced last, for last year, but on several occasions the Commission postponed the publication of the legislative proposals. And now, following the events in the US, the Commission put the proposals back on the agenda after several high-profile politicians, including European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde, uh, called for progress on the issue. And should the balance of different political groupings within the Parliament change considerably, the processes for adopting a negotiating mandate may start all over again. But as we cannot predict the future, this remains to be seen. Certainly, Flutka. Um, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this podcast and sharing your insights into the Commission's proposals. That concludes the European section of this podcast. So that concludes this Regulation Around the World podcast covering recovery and resolution. My thanks to Tim Byrne and Flutka van den Bogart for joining us today and providing their insights from a US and EU perspective. As I mentioned in the introduction, a written update accompanies this podcast and includes coverage of recovery and resolution developments in those countries, and also the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, France, Germany, Luxembourg, the UAE, Hong Kong, Singapore, China, and South Africa. So that concludes this podcast. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.